Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Chuck and Carla, so great to see you guys and your family. We're thankful that you're here with us uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to finish up uh, looking at the last of the I Am statements. I hope you've enjoyed uh, our series this summer as we've looked at these statements together. I know that it, for me it's just been a huge blessing to, to recognize who Jesus is as he reveals himself to us. Next week we're actually going to take the culmination of all these things and consider if that is who he is, then what does that mean about us? If he is the I am, then who are we in him? And so we'll put those together and uh, I think that'll be great closure to considering what uh, significance there is in those statements. The, the, the final I am statement that Jesus makes takes place in that same dialogue that we talked about last week. As I've already mentioned, this conversation between Jesus and his disciples is, is significant because these are his final words in those last moments with his disciples. You'll remember how he gathered them together, knowing that his time had come to leave this world and it said, return to his father. Having loved his own, the scripture says, till the very end. And as you look at these final words of Jesus in this upper room discourse, the, the love of Christ keeps crashing upon the disciples like waves to the ocean, from the ocean to the shore. We see the wave of the washing of the disciples' feet. The wave of the, the place that he will prepare by way of the cross. The wave of eternal life in the presence of God. He speaks of the wave of the Spirit of truth that abides with them and will be in them. He goes on to explain how that Spirit of truth will be a helper, a teacher, a source of eternal life. Wave upon wave of Christ's love is revealed in this final conversation with His disciples. As He seeks to, to comfort those who have found faith in Him as He loves them to the very end. He will tell them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives will I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your heart be fearful. As we talked about last week, that, that statement implies a choice, doesn't it? Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be fearful. As we said, faith is the antidote to fear. Have faith in my Father, Jesus says. Have faith also in me. He expresses his desire for the disciples to, to trust in him. He says in chapter 14, verse 29, I have told you these things before they come to pass, so that when they do come to pass, you may believe. As we've said, remember that the, the disciples, in fact, do believe in who Jesus is. You'll recall Peter's confession, which I believe represents the heart of all the disciples when he said, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just a couple of weeks ago, we heard Martha's confession when she said, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the, the Son of God who came into this world for us. So we need to understand that Jesus is speaking to those who believe in who He is. But Jesus understands the importance of them growing in their faith in preparation for things yet to come. 
Jesus will eventually reveal to them what lies ahead in this same upper room discourse. He will tell them that because they hated me, they will also hate you. Because they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Because they seek to kill me, they will seek to kill you. He knows that endurance through these kinds of trials will take a deep faith. And so Jesus draws his disciples in close and he, and he tells them, he invites them to abide in him. It makes me think of what we do as parents when we're in a place with our kids that could be dangerous. I think of Chuck and Carla when we're in Mexico City and we go through some of those big places where there's tons of people. What do we tell our kids during situations? I've seen Carla do this, so I know it's true. She says, you stay right here. Stay close. Don't leave my side. Hold my hand. Okay? I believe that's the heart behind what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's looking at them, knowing what's what's ahead, and he's saying, stay close. Abide in me. Stay right here by my side. That's the heart of this conversation that he's having with his disciples. And so before we look at that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to see, as we examine your word this morning, the heart that you have for your disciples as you prepare them for things yet to come. And in understanding that, Father, I pray that we appreciate the significance of the very same heart that you have for us, inviting us to stay close, to abide in you as you prepare us for things yet to come. So, Father, as we read these words spoken to your disciples, may we enter into this story. May we participate in this conversation, knowing that the words that you spoke to them are the very same words that you speak to us this morning. May we hear them clearly with the heart and passion that you intended. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and let's look at this passage together. We're going to begin in verse 1. So if you'll read along with me, John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus, still speaking in this discourse with his disciples, says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they are gathered together and cast into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. And by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Those are beautiful words. The analogy begins by informing us that that God is the vine dresser or the gardener and that Jesus is the true vine. Now, that qualifier that Jesus makes is significant because the disciples, when they hear this idea about a vine, would immediately think through a repeated Old Testament image of Israel being God's chosen vine. So when he makes that statement, he knows that that's what comes to mind. So he qualifies it by saying, I am the true vine. And in doing so, he is wanting to distinguish for them who he is apart from who they are as the people of God's chosen nation. And that's important because there's something significant that that has happened within the context of this chosen nation of Israel. In fact, I want us to look at that together. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. We'll see in this passage one example of, of how Jesus uses this imagery of the vine, or God uses this imagery of the vine through the prophet Isaiah. L- listen to, uh, to this as he speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on, on a fertile hill. And he dug all around and, and removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. But it only produced worthless ones. And now... O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than what I have not already done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. And I will lay it to waste and it will not be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns will come up. And I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, Bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. You see, Israel was God's chosen vine. And from that vine, he desired to harvest a harvest of faith. He set Israel apart. He planted them in the fertile soil of the promised land. He, he fed them with truth from people like the prophet Isaiah. And even protected them from the enemies that surrounded them and and told them to be a light among the nations. But instead of a harvest of faith, Scripture tells us that, that Israel only produced worthless grapes. You see, Israel failed to fulfill its mission. And now Jesus has come as a new vine, the true vine, in which a new harvest of faith would take place. 
Now, the vine of Israel, we need to understand, still exists, along with a number of other vines that have been propagated as well. Over time, there's an increasing variety of religious systems and, and worldviews that we can attach ourselves to. But Jesus makes it clear. I am the true vine. You are the branches. You can attach yourselves to lots of things, but Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Israel still exists, as do a number of other religious systems and worldviews. But there's only one vine that gives eternal life, and that's the true vine, Jesus Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. And according to our passage, there are really only two kinds of branches being described by Jesus. Those that bear fruit and those that that do not bear fruit. And the branches that, that bear fruit only do so because they abide in the vine. This seems to be important because Jesus actually repeats this statement seven times in these eight verses. He goes on to say it three more times before the end of the chapter. He says, abide in me and bear fruit. Abide in me and bear more fruit. Uh, Abide in me and bear much fruit. There's a progression there, isn't it? Bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit. It's as if the, the more we abide in Christ, the more fruit is produced in our life. And I believe that's true. Some translations use the word remain, where my translation uses the word abide. It's the same idea. Stay close. Stay connected. I think, or more literally, it means have faith. Have faith. If you ask me, I think that's the the main point. After all, what did Israel do or not do that caused them to produce such bad fruit? You see, they failed to produce good fruit because their heart was not faithful to God. Isaiah, in that same chapter that we looked at, would go on to to talk about how how Israel rejected the law of the Lord. It says that they despised the word of the Holy One. They turned their back on God and did detestable things, the Scripture says, in His sight. Worshipping idols instead of worshipping God. And so when Jesus calls his disciples to abide in him, to remain in him, he is urging them to have faith in him. Because true faith is ultimately what produces good fruit. True faith is ultimately what produces good fruit. And this fruit of faith is so important that that God, the gardener, will do whatever he can to cultivate and to maximize the harvest of that fruit. And he does so by by pruning branches that are connected to Christ so that they bear more fruit. And Jesus explains exactly what that means when he talks about pruning branches. At the end of verse 2, he says, God prunes the branch so that it will bear more fruit. And then using that same word in the original language, it's different in our translation, but in the original language, it's the same word. In verse 3, he says, you are already clean or pruned, same word, because of the word which I've spoken to you. So what that tells us is that that God's word, God's revealed truth, 
is the necessary ingredient for growing in faith. A faith that produces good fruit. For those of you who keep a journal, I think you probably, better than most, know what this looks like. If you were to flip through the pages of your journal as you've reflected on the the work of God in your life, you would see the fingerprints of a gardener. Using the the sharpness of that sort of truth to, to cut away things that inhibit your growth. To see how he uh, removes burdens that weigh you down. And lifts up places where you are weak and need to be strengthened. God is always at work in a way that helps to, to maximize the fruit of faith in our life. That flows out of an abiding walk with Christ. Now, there's a lot of talk about fruit in this passage, isn't there? And I think it's important for us as we read through this and and think about what it means to abide in Christ to to understand what that fruit looks like. And I think Jesus intends for us to do that because he goes to the point of of helping explain what some of these examples of fruit may be. Look at look at verse seven, chapter 15 of of our passage, verse seven. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words Abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. So one thing that we see here again is how the word cultivates our faith so that our our life bears fruit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, and then it's as if Jesus reaches up to that branch, picks a piece of fruit and says, like this one, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You'll remember a similar statement made by Jesus in our passage last week when he said, Whenever you, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Later on in our same passage here in chapter 15, Jesus will say, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will do for you. And so one of the fruits of faith is answered prayer. Now, the priority of prayer should not be A surprise to us because we see it all throughout the life of Christ. So much so that his disciples actually come to him seeing this priority in his life. And what do they say? Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. After all, Jesus prayed before the tomb of Lazarus and he comes out alive. Jesus prayed before the five loaves and two fish and then he fed 5,000 people. All throughout the scripture, it talks about how Jesus withdrew to a quiet place to pray. And in that, his strength was renewed. His purpose was clarified. The disciples witnessed the priority of prayer in the life of Christ. And so they asked him, Lord, will you teach us how to pray? And we all know the response that Jesus gives. The Lord's prayer is familiar to us all. And that was his answer. In fact, let's do this. Let's say that together, okay? We're just going to say the Lord's Prayer together out loud. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. So we all know those words. We've got them memorized. 
then I hope that as you recite them with your mouth, you understand with your heart the very central message of that prayer. The heart of the prayer is the desire to live in a way that is consistent with God's will. Your will be done, it says, on earth as it is in heaven. And and so prayers that are prayed in the name of Jesus are the ones that are marked by a heart that is surrendered to God. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. This is so important because oftentimes what we ask for and what we think about as answered prayer has more to do about what God does for us than what God does in us. For example, my my car is broken and he fixed it. I was sick and he healed me. But the problem with this perspective is exposed when my car continues to break down or my disease continues to advance. So when that happens, does that mean that God didn't answer my prayer? Does that mean that I didn't have enough faith when I spoke that prayer? Does that mean that that God answers some prayers, but not all prayers? No, I believe that what Jesus is saying very clearly and repeatedly is that God will answer every prayer of faith in a way that is consistent with His will. And so our primary goal in prayer is not to bargain with God so that He gives us what we want. Instead, our goal in prayer is to surrender to God so that we want what He wants. So that our life is conformed to His will. That way when my car breaks down, I don't look and blame Him for a failure of answering my prayer, but I realize that in fact He's strengthening me. He is teaching me to be content in circumstances in life when when they don't happen like I want them to. I don't know about you, but that kind of contentment in my life would be an answer to prayer. The other thing I think of is when when our body fails us, when, when our outside grows weak, our inside, it says, can grow strong. As Paul says, we do not lose hope because even though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. I witnessed this truth in my brother probably better than any time I've ever seen it in my life. So much so that as the news about his cancer grew worse and worse, his faith grew stronger and stronger. To the point that near the end of his life, he was able to look at you in the face and tell you, God has promised to heal me. I don't know if it's this side of heaven or the other, but I will be healed. That is a prayer of faith that is surrendered to the will of God. And that is what flows out of an abiding walk with Christ. There is no other explanation. Jesus goes on as he talks about this to give another example. Look at verse 8. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. See, the fruit of answered prayer by living in accordance with God's will always yields a harvest of faith that ultimately brings glory to God. That was certainly true in the life of my brother. 
And I hear the same thing through the stories that are being told in the testimonies during the brown bag lunch. I hear the same things at the men's and women's retreat as, as people give testimonies. You've heard it on Sunday morning as they've spoken to us as a body. You read about it in the back of the bulletin in those stories of, of transformation. These all speak of God's faithfulness in the lives of those who have put their trust in Him. They give witness of, of another one of those fruits of faith, which is the commitment to fulfill God's purpose in our life. We prove to be His disciples when our lives give glory to God. As we understand with increasing clarity what on earth we're here for. <laughs> There's a passage in Romans chapter 4 that speaks of this when it talks about the, the, the life of Abraham. When describing his faith, Paul talks about how God had promised Abraham to be a father of many nations. And yet at this time, he was a hundred years old and he did not have a single child. And so within this context, speaking about the faith of Abraham, Paul says, without being weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. So instead of losing hope, and instead of, uh, of focusing on what he didn't have, Abraham chose instead to focus on what God said that he would do. Growing strong in his faith, including the commitment to bring glory to God by fulfilling the purpose that he had called him to. I love what Eugene Peterson has to say when, when he comments on this passage. He writes, Abraham didn't focus on his own impotence and say, it's hopeless. This hundred year old body could never father a child. Nor did he survey the, the Sarah's decades of infertility and give up. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise asking cautiously skeptical questions. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. But that's not just Abraham, Peterson says. It's also true for us. When we embrace and believe, and I would add, abide in the God who rose, who brought Jesus to life when the conditions were equally Hopeless. But the sacrifice of Jesus, he says, made us fit for God by making us right with God. And I would add, giving us purpose to live for God. Glorifying God by fulfilling his purpose is a fruit of faith in the life of those who abide in Christ. Following God's will, fulfilling God's purpose, and then finally, living in the fullness of God's joy. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So here's another fruit. He reaches once again to one of those branches and says like this one, the joy of the Lord is full in you. Go back to verse 10, if you would. I think this is where we find the source of that joy. It says this, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy 
may be complete. In other words, we experience God's love within the life of obedience, where the joy of the Lord is made full. Now, I realize that as I make that statement in a group this size, there are those of you who hear that and you think, I I don't get that. Because very often God's commandments are seen as a burden and not a blessing. The Bible is what keeps us from doing what we want to do by insisting on the things that we ought to do. Obligation instead of, instead of privilege. But that perspective comes from something other than, than eyes of faith. Because John will write in his first letter, after having written this gospel, he says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And listen to this. He says, And His commandments are not burdensome. You see, God's laws reflect God's design. And when we live within the parameters of God's design, I believe wholeheartedly that we experience the fullness of God's goodness. So, for example, if you want to have a fulfilled marriage, follow His design. If you want to live with contentment during difficult circumstances, follow His design. If you want to have purpose and meaning in life, then follow His design. The commandments of God are given to us in grace so that when we follow His design, we experience His love and our joy is made complete. In this, we experience the reality of the words that God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah when He said, For I know the plans that I have for you. And here they are. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. These plans of God are revealed within the commandments of God, given to us for our benefit and not for our harm, given not as a burden but as a blessing, so that in them we can experience the joy of the Lord. It's life that is lived outside of God's design. Listen to me. It's life that is lived outside of God's design. Outside of what He intended. When we do things that we think look right. Things that look good in the eyes of men. Those are the things that leave us empty and incomplete. Abide in Me, Jesus says. And when you do, you will live a life bearing fruit. As you walk in God's will. Fulfill God's purpose. Experience God's joy. These are the the evidences of a faithful, fruit-filled life. But what about those branches that don't bear fruit? They're mentioned in this passage as well. Jesus talks about them. And and, and biblical scholars have, have debated for years and years the identity of these fruitless branches. Are they Christians who've fallen away? Or does it represent those who profess to be Christians, but in the absence of faith, it only shows that they never truly believed? I've labored over this one myself, and and I've come to the personal conclusion that when we encounter those who claim to be Christians, but they do not have the evidence of fruit in their life, we don't know which one it is. We don't know. Only the vine dresser knows the difference. And, and he is the one who will tend his garden. 
by either disciplining those who are his or judging those who have rejected him. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be unconcerned. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus goes to the length with which he did to describe for us the evidence of fruit in a faithful life. It's because he wants us to look for it. But when I say that, I want to urge you to be cautious so that we don't judge the heart of others from a distance. But instead, let me encourage you to engage, to understand what's on the heart of those in which you are spending time with so that you give them an opportunity to look at Scripture with you, to talk about how they've come to those convictions. Because here's the deal. You may be able to actually lead someone to Christ if you would be willing to have that conversation. But too often we judge from a distance and never allow that opportunity. So engage. Listen. Watch and observe what happens in their life. But all that should should impact how we relate to people. Especially in our world today where, quite frankly, what it means to be a Christian means absolutely nothing. It's wise not to just take people at their word. We should examine their life. It's like John the Baptist announced when he told those people who listened to him, he said, look for fruit in keeping with repentance. People can say all they want to about having faith in God and how their life has been changed, but their actions will always expose the true condition of their heart. That's true for them, and it's true for you and I as well. A heart of faith will always produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Things like Jesus has already mentioned to us. Walking in God's will, fulfilling God's purpose, and experiencing God's joy. Jesus says, look for the fruit, both in your life and in the life of others. And what Jesus says next, I think, may be the greatest evidence of the fruit of faith of all. Okay, Look at verse 12 with me and read there. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one day lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. So as I read that section of our passage, I I believe that the greatest evidence of a mature faith in Christ is a self-sacrificing love. They will know you are my disciples, we know from Scripture, because of what? Your love for one another, right? And here he says, love each other just as I have loved you. And then he gives them what that ultimate example looks like when he says, greater love has no one than he who lays down his life for his friends. Now, we read this and we know that Jesus has the cross in view. But he's speaking to his disciples and this would not have been something that they would have understood at this point in time. But I think it is one of those things that Jesus speaks of when he says, there are things that I will reveal to you before they happen, so that when they do, you may believe. I think this is one of those things. 
The disciples knew in this moment that Jesus loved them, but they did not understand the full magnitude of his love until they saw him on the cross. Now, as we think through this, I want to encourage you to keep in mind the context. Jesus has the cross in view. He's loved his disciples to the very end. And in these final words, he's preparing them for things yet to come. Like a loving father, he's calling his disciples to to draw in close, to abide in him. He speaks of the fruit of the evidence of their faith and and the sacrifices, the evidence of their love. And then in verse 16, he reminds his disciples that they didn't choose him, that he chose them. And even more so, he appointed them with a purpose. They were called to fulfill a mission. And the fruit of their faith and the answers of their prayers would work together to accomplish God's will. You see, it's so important in this context for the disciples to understand this. And as you and I listen to it today, I think it's equally important for us as a church to recognize it as well. And here's why. Because we are not immune to failing in our mission and following in the footsteps of Israel. That's not beyond us. In fact, I wonder, as I look at the events of the world that surrounds us, and I see senseless murders, vile crimes against children, rampant immorality, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, wars, rumors of wars, I wonder. I wonder if this is happening due to the failure of the mission of the church. Maybe it's like the church in Ephesus, doctrinally sound, spiritually impotent. I received an email this week from a guy by the name of Joel Rosenberg, a man I respect in the Christian community. And in this letter, he email, he uh, shared a letter, an open letter from Billy Graham that he wrote recently, and I wanted to share that with you. I want you to listen very closely to what he says. Since some years ago, my wife, Ruth, was reading the draft of a book I was writing when she finished a section describing the terrible downward spiral of our nation's moral standards and the idolatry of worshiping false gods such as technology and sex. And and she startled me by exclaiming, this is a great statement, listen to this. If God doesn't punish America, He'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. If God doesn't punish America, He'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. He goes on to say, she was probably thinking of a passage in Ezekiel where God tells why He brought those cities to ruin. When He says, now this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty or proud and detest, and they did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. I wonder what Ruth, he says, I wonder what Ruth would think of America if she were alive today. In the years since her, she made that remark, millions of babies have been aborted, and our nation seems largely unconcerned. Self-centered indulgence, pride, and a lack of shame over sin are now emblems of the American lifestyle. Our society strives to avoid any possibility of offending anyone except God. And recent events make that explicitly true. 
Yet the farther we get from God, the more the world spirals out of control. Our society strives to avoid any possibility of offending anyone except God. He closes by saying, my heart aches for America and its deceived people. The wonderful news is that our Lord is a God of mercy and he responds to repentance. He reminds us that in Jonah's day, Nineveh was the lone world superpower, wealthy, unconcerned, self-centered. When the prophet Jonah finally traveled to Nineveh and proclaimed God's warning, people heard and they repented. I believe the same thing can happen once again, Graham says, this time in our nation. And I want you to know that I believe that is true as well. I believe there can be a spiritual revival within our nation. But listen to me. Only if the church renews and is faithful to the mission that it's been given. That's the only way. And so let me encourage you to do something this week. I want to ask each and every person to take time this week, every single day, to mark out a time where you pray. Where you pray for the church. Where you pray for this church to fulfill its mission. Drawing close in our fellowship with God and caring for sacrificially the needs of others. Making disciples and growing in faith. A faith, as Scripture tells us, in keeping with repentance. A faith that bears the fruit of those who abide in Christ, who walk in God's will, fulfilling God's purpose to the praise of God's glory until He comes again. In my opinion, that may not be too far off. Let's pray that we are prepared. Fulfill the mission that we've been called. Let's pray together. God, it would make sense that we take the time even now to pray that prayer. And, and that prayer needs to begin with confession. <laughs> that in fact we, uh, in many ways, have failed to be the people of God that you have called us to be. Uh, we uh, are rich in knowledge but very often failing in the fruit that you've called us to produce. The fruit of faith in a a faithful walk that abides in you. Uh, Walking in your will and fulfilling your purpose and and living in accordance with things that bring you glory. And so, Father, I I pray that you would renew within us individually a desire to surrender our hearts to you, to live a life that worships you in every detail. Not just what we do on Sunday morning, but when we wake up on Monday that we begin that day as a day of worship. And the same on Tuesday and Wednesday and every single day thereafter. That our lives give glory to you. And that we speak of your goodness and your faithfulness. That we encourage others as we have found in our own life to to bear the fruit of repentance as we come before you as our God and Savior. Father, I pray for a revival in our nation that would influence and impact our world. That that people would be drawn to you as the one true vine, the God and Savior of this world, and that we would all understand that apart from you we can do nothing. Father, this is our heart's desire, and we realize that it is only possible 
if we walk in the good works that you've prepared beforehand, because apart from the Spirit, we can do nothing. So may we surrender to you, follow you, be faithful to you, so that you can do your work through us as a light to the nations. May that begin in the life of the church, and specifically this church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.